In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. The fourth LDS article of faith states, We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. In our previous episode of the Outer Brightness podcast, we each discussed our past experiences as Latter-day Saints related to the necessity of baptism and the sacrament, what most Christians refer to as the Lord's Supper, communion, etc., whether differences in viewpoints on the sacraments or ordinances disrupt the unity of the Christian church, and how we now prepare and receive the Lord's Supper and baptism as born-again Christians. In this episode, we would like to take a closer look at the subject. As full-time missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every, during every weekly meeting at least, for those of us who are young enough to use preach my gospel, <coughs> sorry Paul, <coughs> we recited the following. Our purpose is to invite others to come into Christ by helping them receive the restored gospel through faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. We were taught and we taught others that, without question, except for those who pass away before the age of eight, the age of accountability, water baptism and confirmation were absolutely necessary ordinances that everyone must receive from a Latter-day Saint priesthood holder to be eligible to enter the celestial kingdom, the highest of the three degrees of heaven. There were no ifs, ands, or buts. If someone did not receive the restored gospel, which included faith, repentance, water baptism by immersion, and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, he or she must receive these ordinances by proxy in the LDS temple. There was just no getting around it. In previous episodes, we have described our personal journeys out of the LDS church and toward biblical Christianity. In continuing our faith journeys, one topic that was of particular concern to me was what water baptism is, what it signifies, who must receive it, and whether it is still an absolute requirement for eternal life. The same was true for the sacrament. Why do Christians do it? Do they believe the same things that I did about it? Does God do anything in the sacrament, or is it a memorial only? During this episode, we hope to address some of these questions and describe how we have grown in our understanding of Scripture concerning water baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
We will also dive into passages that we often used as LDS missionaries to demonstrate that we must receive baptism in order to be saved and reconsider whether this is still the case. While we three may have differing views on these topics, we recognize that there is room for disagreement based on the teachings of the Word of God. We all recognize this to be an important topic and that baptism and communion are commanded to be observed in Christ's church by the Lord himself. While we may not understand them in the same way, we acknowledge that we are brothers in Christ's church and that we each are seeking to follow him, to be conformed to his image, and that we must be willing to be teachable. A Christian's journey never ends, and we hope that this discussion will be enlightening and help you along our continuing faith journey. Throughout this episode, the words ordinances and sacraments may be used interchangeably depending on our own personal beliefs, while recognizing that these terms are not always synonymous. We also recognize that some traditions view a differing number of total sacraments or ordinances, but following the previous episodes titled What About Sacraments or Ordinances, we will be limiting our discussion to the historic Protestant view that the sacraments or ordinances comprise baptism by water and the Lord's Supper. For an extended discussion on this, we recommend listening to these previous episodes. Thanks for joining us, Fireflies. Before we jump in here, I want to just um, I want to acknowledge the fact that this uh, this topic, right, where we're talking about the sacraments, has been the uh, the longest uh, that we've spent on any any one topic so far. Um, at 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 the end of it, it's probably going to end up being a six part episode where each part is about an hour long, which I think is interesting. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts, guys, before we jump back in tonight on why you think that is. Uh, is it, you know, is it tied to the fact that for, for Latter-day Saints, these topics will be very uh, important as they make a transition? Or is it that we just should never let Matthew write an episode guide again? Which is it? Well, I mean, we already tried to take him off the list for <laughs> writing episodes. And I think it was subconscious, but now that you mention it, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oof. No, I, I, I'm being serious though. I think that I, th- <laughs> I, I had to get that joke in there guys. Um, but being serious though, I, I think, I think you've done a great job in, in prep here, Matthew. And I, and I think it, I think these topics are important, right? Mm-hmm. When we have conversations with Latter-day Saints, um, one of the first things they go to is, you know, is, is baptism necessary? Right. Right. So I think it's good that we've kind of dug into these topics really in depth. So I just wanted to make that point as part of part of the episode. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, go ahead, oh no, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah. Um, I mean, just just in light of what you were saying there, Paul, I think it's it is really important to talk about these subjects because, um, for one thing, Latter Day Saints need to see that they're not the only ones that uh, that take baptism and and communion seriously that there is a lot of thought, you know, that, that people take in, into account with that. But also, you know, not saying that if they were to leave Mormonism and become uh, Protestant, that that necessarily means that they have to throw out everything. You know, there's definitely still a value in those. And, and you know, they can step right into that. And I think that's, that's why that's important for us to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Matthew? Yeah, I was, I was going to say that um, the reason why I wanted to talk about these passages is partially what you touched on, Paul, is that I think Latter-day Saints, or when, okay, I should say when I was Latter-day Saint, I didn't know that Christians really dug into the Bible so deeply as they do in regards to church life, in regards to officers of the church, the sacraments, like, all, all you know, basically the whole religious walk of the Christian life is based on scripture. And, you know, 
I kind of thought of it as like, well, you know, they have a lot of really good intentions and they probably read the Bible and really like it, but they probably follow these things just because it's kind of like tradition, you know, it's passed down from their, their church leaders and their church leaders before them. They're like, this is just the way we do it. You know? So I thought it was kind of just like a passing down of tradition. But then when you really study the Bible and they say, well, this is why we believe this, this is why we, you know, we, we only do it this way. And, you know, there's still, you know, differences of opinion on certain passages, but they're all diving into the text and are trying to honor the Lord by doing it the way he wants us to do it. And so that really surprised me. And, and, and also do, just due to the fact that one, one of the last things that I held on to as Latter-day Saint was like, okay, the reason why our church is true and theirs is not is we have the only correct ordinances, the only efficacious ordinances. And that's what's going to get me into the kingdom of heaven. You know, like that's what's going to get me through the gate is my baptism, my confirmation, my endowment, my priesthood, all that. So then when I realized that we can't have a personal and direct connection with God, like I, th- I think Michael said, had, had similar feelings in the past where he's, he's explained, it's like, okay, well, if I can go directly to God and I don't need these ordinances and this priesthood is not what I thought it was, then it's like, well, then what purpose do they serve? You know, what, why am I in the LDS church? You know, it's kind of like really confusing. Like that was the la- probably the last, one of the last threads that, that held me into the church. So the idea of leaving it, is scary to Latter-day Saints because they're like, well, baptism is so important to me. My baptism is important. You know, I, I enjoy taking the sacrament every week. It's an important part of my life and I can't give that up. And then if we can show them, okay, well, you don't have to give it up. You just have to have a, you know, you can have a more biblical and faithful view of these things and you can partake of them. Maybe not every week, but you can partake of them in a church setting and it is part of a Christian life. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's not just leading Latter-day Saints out of their church. It's, it's what we lead them into. And we're trying to create that bridge. If all we do is say, if all we do is burn down the village, you know, then they'll come out running and screaming, but they won't have anywhere else to go. So it's more about building a bridge from point A to point B to where they can feel comfortable and, you know, safe taking that plunge and leaving the church and and finding a a good church to, to worship. So sorry, that was a really long winded answer that I, wasn't planning on being that long-winded, but do you see what I mean? It just seems like that's a really key point of what my old test, my former testimony was, was the ordinances of the LDS church. And so explaining it like, okay, in the Bible, this is how they are from a biblical perspective. Then, you know, maybe that'll help some Latter-day Saints realize where there may be some issues there or maybe some differences. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a good response for sure. I, I really do think it's important that we've spent the time here on, on yep. this topic. And that's, that's why I, I brought it up, you know, when I was editing the other day and kind of looking at how many, how many hours of this topic we were going to have, I, th- I thought, wow, that's, that's really telling about how important this is in the transition. So I think it's good. Mm-hmm. And just going through the passages of scripture too, you know, right. especially on baptism, because how many times do they point out Acts 2, 38, 39 and John 3, 5, it's like, well, you can't get to heaven without baptism, you know? And so. And uh, what, what's really interesting too is Mormons, they hammer in the baptism so heavily. Hmm. They act like if they can prove that one thing that somehow it's going to prove that their entire church is true. You know, it's like saying if, if I just get to home base in playing baseball, then I've gotten a home run. And that's simply not true. You know, there just, there just isn't enough evidence for the rest of everything that they, you know, teach that there are, you know, temple ordinances that you have to go through and an endowment and that you have to be married and sealed. And so just, just going off of that one thing, baptism, which they focus so heavily on, it really isn't accomplishing what they think it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. Let's jump into this week. All right. So having discussed water baptism, let's move on to the Lord's supper, the Lord's table or communion. 
As a Latter-day Saint, what did the sacrament in the bread and water mean to you? What purpose did it serve and why was it done every single week? And how has your view changed and why? So maybe, maybe we can wait. Well, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about our views now um, and how it's changed. It's our view. We guys want to do it. It's an open discussion. So uh, whoever wants to go first. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and tackle this one. So as a Latter-day Saint, I viewed it as being 100% symbolic of the shed blood and flesh of Christ on our behalf. I mean, these sacrament prayers even say that we are taking, you know, the, the bread and water that we may always remember him, that we may have a spirit to be with us. So it's just a symbol to help us remember um, Jesus. And now uh, we took it every week because we needed to renew our covenants. That is what was hammered into us, you know, the whole time I was growing up. And it's, it's interesting now because I'll see Latter-day Saints will have kind of one, one of two theologies for what that actually means to renew their covenants. And so one of those is like kind of like how you renew your car insurance. You know, when you sin, it actually breaks. It actually goes away. So you're not covered anymore. And so you've got to renew it so that you will be covered again. And then the other thought is kind of more like a wedding vowel renewal. It's like, you know, the, the wedding or the marriage never stopped, but you can renew those vows and it's just, uh, it's just something that, that you can do. The problem with, you know, thinking about it in terms of like a wedding vow renewal is that basically you are starting to believe in eternal security at that point. And I'm seeing a lot of Latter-day Saints these days kind of taking that, that kind of a position. But for me... You know, I believed that by the time I was taking the sacrament every week, I was in sin and I was no longer in Christ. And I think my biggest fear every week was that Christ would come back on Saturday before I had the chance to take the sacrament. <laughs> and then Sunday would come and I would take the sacrament and I believe that it, clean, it cleansed me. And I thought, okay, now would be a really good time for Christ to come back. And so I constantly was just living in fear, you know, Wednesday through Saturday of the second coming happening because I just never felt like I was uh, like I was worthy and I needed that sacrament to cleanse me again. So that's how I viewed it at the time. Of course, now I, I believe that, you know, I've been justified. I've been forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. And so I don't have that same fear on Saturdays. I actually enjoy my Saturdays a lot more now than I did as a Latter-day Saint. And so to me, the sacrament is really, it's the, it shows me the gift of God's love and his grace, um, you know, in that he died for me while I was still a sinner, while I was still rebellious, and that gift was still offered to me. And that's how I view it now, that it is something that I can take to not only remember Christ, but but to partake in that gift, you know, in the divine gift that I've been given. Yeah. I was thinking about how you talked about how is it like a renewal of a marriage covenant. It's, it's interesting if you think about it like that, because it's not really the same, at least that is, is how I saw it as a Latter-day Saint, because when you renew a marriage covenant, it's not like you need to renew the marriage covenant or else it lapses. Do you know what I mean? Whereas oh, yeah. when you, when you're, when you're taking the sacrament, you need to constantly renew that or else your baptism basically becomes ineffective because the baptism was meant to cleanse your sins. Well, if you keep racking up these sins and don't take the sacrament, then it's almost as if like being baptized did nothing for you. You know what I mean? So it's interesting just to think about that, 
because I think I've, I thought about that too. I thought about it as like a, a marriage covenant, you know, with God and it's like renewing it every week, you know, to remember him. But when you really think about it and break it down, it doesn't quite fit. I don't think. No, I don't think so either. Especially when, you know, the bishops, you know, if you confess certain sins to a bishop, they'll tell you not to take the sacrament, you know, and it's like, okay, like you have to have a certain amount of worthiness to even take it. And yet it's not supposed to be taken unworthily. And so it kind of ends up putting you into this, this conundrum sometimes, but I don't think you can view it in, in the LDS church as just being like a wedding vow renewal um, because there's actually, you know, this sense all the time that, that it's been broken. You know, you've broken your covenants. That is the worst thing that you can possibly do in the church. You know what? I thought I, I didn't think of this until now and I should have, but it would have actually been really nice to really break down the the prayer that they use in the sacrament and talk about that because it seems to me at least that, that the bread and the water kind of contradict each other. It seemed like the bread talks about, you know, are you living the commandments? Are you, are you doing this? Are you doing that? And then the water says, do you desire to keep the commandments, you know? And so that's what I held to as a Latter-day Saint. It's like, well, I have the desire. I'm not doing it perfectly, but at least I have the desire. So that means I can take it. So I don't know. Did you guys want to talk more about that? Or um, is that kind of going off on a tangent? I don't know. It might be it might be an interesting point to talk about. I think it'd be super cool to talk about it. I mean, I kind of didn't think about it either until I was quoting, kind of quoting that prayer. But I totally forgot about the prayers. And I think it'd be cool to kind of look over them. <laughs> What do you think, Paul? Is that is that going too far? I mean, we have a lot of questions already, kind of formulated, but yeah, since no, I, since Mormons I, talk about it every week, you know, it's 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 bludgeoned in their brain. It'd be cool yeah. to to talk about it. Yeah, let's do it. But um, let me get my thoughts in here before sure, we go yeah. there. Go ahead. Um, so, Michael and and Matthew, you both touched on a couple of things that that were common to my experience as well. So, like as a latter when I was a Latter Day Saint, um, I viewed the the sacrament or, or Lord's Supper as, um, you know, an ordinance done in remembrance of Jesus's sacrifice, right? That, that the remembrance is what you talked about, Michael, coming from the, 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 the rote sacrament prayers. Um, the bread was, was just a symbol of Christ's body and the water was just a symbol of his blood. There was no, um, no transubstantiation or anything like that, um, taking place, uh, fully symbolic, um, and Michael, as you noted, it was the purpose was as a renewal of the baptismal covenant. I liked what you said about, um, you know, the two different ways to view that as, as like an insurance renewal versus like a, a wedding vow renewal. Um, but my understanding was that that it was intended to be um, a time of reflection on whether or not I had lived worthily of Jesus's sacrifice in the prior week or whether I had sinned. And, and if I'm going to be honest um, for me in the, in my experience as a Latter-day Saint, it was a time of mental self-flagellation, um, because I knew every, every week that had passed that I had not been perfect. Right. And that's, that's, that's kind of what you're presented as, as needing to be right. If you've, if you've sinned in some way, then, then you have to renew that covenant as, as Michael was saying. And, and, and if you sinned in some way, then that covenant made it baptism is broken. Um, and so it was a time that I I would beat myself up over every little way that that I'd sinned the week before and fallen short, and and I would repent and I would covenant to try to be better in the coming week. But but honestly, it was a time of self condemnation for me. It wasn't it wasn't an enjoyable experience. 
And so to contrast that with, with kind of how I view it now, um, I view the Lord's Supper now as an act of worship. It's a time of praise to my Lord for what he's done and taking away my sin and canceling the record of debt that stood against me and nailing it to the cross. And I think it's fascinating to throw in a note of contrast here. So I just paraphrased Colossians 2.14, and I don't remember ever hearing that passage quoted during my time in, in the LDS church. Maybe my memory is bad, but I, I did a search on the LDS Gospel Library app on my phone for Colossians 2.14, um, and the results are that if you search the abbreviation of call 214, C-O-L 214, you get a total of four hits, which are all references to the LDS Bible Dictionary uh, that reference other passages in Colossians that have either the number two or the number 14 associated with them. Man. Um, when I search for Colossians 2.14 with Colossians spelled out, zero results. Nothing in general conference addresses, nothing in LDS Church magazines. When I go on the LDS Church website uh, on my laptop, so not the mobile app, and I search for Colossians 2.14 in quotes for direct hits, I only get three results. One is a link to Colossians chapter 2 in the Bible. You'd expect the passage to be there. One is explicitly, is inexplicably a link to Colossians chapter 1. I couldn't figure out why it's linking you to Colossians chapter 1 when you're looking for 2.14. Um, the third is a link to chapter 45 of the current New Testament manual for LDS college students. And that manual does discuss the passage in some detail, though it focuses on the forgiveness of the Colossian saints' past sins against the law of Moses and talks about how, you know, through the atonement, our sins may be forgiven. Um, and so my memory served me well that that, that that passage had never been quoted, at least in my hearing in general conference, um, because if it has, it's not indexed in the search results on either the LDS Church mobile app or their website. Um, but, you know, seeing that it is covered in the New Testament manual for college students and knowing that that I had studied through the New Testament Institute manual when I was on my on my LDS mission, uh, I got my, my old manual out. It's called The Life and Teachings of Jesus and His Apostles. And in that manual, um, which is now outdated, chapter 42 covers Colossians, but skips over chapter two, verse 14 in its commentary. And the scripture index in the back of the manual also confirms that it contains no references to Colossians 2.14. Now that's, that's a lot uh, for me to go through <laughs> to demonstrate that this one passage of scripture has not been an emphasis in official LDS teaching materials or sermons. Um, and so why did I do it? Um, and it's, I did it because this passage of scripture changed my view of what Christ had done and, and how I partake of the Lord's Supper. And so LDS might critique my, my reference to my experience of, of taking the sacrament in the LDS church as, as self-flagellation. But my point is that there are key Bible passages that highlight what it means to be in Christ that are never spoken by LDS leaders from the pulpit, at least not by my memory or by a search of their electronic records. Um, Colossians 2.14 is one. Romans 8.1, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero general conference addresses, according to the LDS search index, have referenced Romans 8.1. And so if, if a Latter-day Saint were to cr criticize me for coming to 
you know, a view of, of, of taking the sacrament as one of self-flagellation, as one of never feeling worthy, never feeling like I add up. Um, I would simply say that there's a reason <laughs> the LDS leaders are not preaching the same gospel, and they're certainly not preaching the full gospel. That, that's great. Uh, I mean, it really hit the nail on the head what you said about not feeling worthy when you were taking the sacrament. I don't think I ever felt totally at peace taking the sacrament for 32 years that I was LDS. There are times, there are times where I felt like I had momentary kind of peace. Like I, I remember one of my last Sundays in my mission, I really felt like, man, I wish I could just stay here forever. But there was also always that creeping fear in my mind. Like, what if I'm not worthy next week or the week after that? Or, you know, what if I do something that makes me lose my salvation? That kind of thing. Well, I didn't use that kind of terminology, but that's basically what I thought. You know, what if I never get it to the celestial kingdom? Or what if I'm not worthy enough? Even after all, all the hard work I did on my mission, you know, what if I still n- never get to the exaltation? So, yeah, I can really connect with that, too. Or wondering if a particular thing you did that week was grievous enough to talk to the bishop about it or something. You know what I mean? Always wondering yeah. if, if uh, what you'd done was, you know, if you could repent of that directly to God or if you had to talk to your bishop about it. Yeah, that was always on the back of my mind. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. That's, that's so, really I, you know, I, I will commend them for having a discussion of, of Colossians 2.14 in their, their institute manual for college students, but it's completely absent from any other teaching materials. And I, I, I think that's a travesty that the peace that, that Latter-day Saints could experience from understanding what Paul says at Colossians 2.14, you know, is, is missing. It's just not given to them. Well, yeah, because yeah, the uh, the leaders of the church lose their their control over you at that point because you don't need them, you don't need their keys or their priesthood or any of that. The moment that you understand, you know, there's there's no more condemnation. Yeah, and and I wonder, you know, we as uh, former Latter Day Saints uh, have kind of mused a little bit in our conversations, both recorded for the podcast and, and not about how different uh, younger Latter-day Saints than us uh, view things. And, and, and I, I sometimes wonder if, if it's because of, you know, the newer manuals that are being used for Institute actually give them a different view than, than, uh, than they're getting uh, or former, you know, earlier generations of Latter-day Saints have gotten from general conference. Yeah. I mean, it could be, did you uh, did you guys want to just kind of look over these verses from the Doctrine and Covenants real quick? Yeah, the, uh, the sacrament prayers because I got them up right now. Sure. Okay, I'm just going to read them. Uh, so this is Doctrine and Covenants 20, starting in verse 77. It says, uh, "Oh God, this is the uh, the sacrament prayers. Oh God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of Thy Son, and witness unto Thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of Thy Son, and always remember Him and keep His commandments, which He has given them, that they may always have His Spirit to be with them. Amen. So that's the bread. And what kind of sticks out to me there is, uh, you know, if we always remember him and keep his commandments, we may have his spirit to be with us. But it kind of has the the willing in there before that. So it's a little unclear. 79 is the uh, the water, but it's wine here. 
O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless, bless and sanctify this wine to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they do always remember him, that they may have his spirit to be with them. Amen. Um, so just on first glance, I don't see a big contradiction, but the bread actually has more attributed to it than the than the wine does because the bread says we're willing to keep his commandments and it doesn't say anything about that with the uh, the wine yeah i i saw it as kind of a contradiction that contradiction in the sense of like verse or, or you know with the water it says that that we witness that we remember christ always that we can have our that we have his spirit to be with us so it seems that that's saying if we remember christ always we'll have his spirit to be with it, with us but when you're talking about the bread, it has more requirements. You know what I mean? So it seemed like it seemed like there was different requirements for having the spirit to be with us. And and yeah, the, there's I think there's a lot more talk today about that that phrase that you mentioned, Michael, where it says that they are willing to take upon them the name of 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 the Son. So they really focus on like well, they're not saying you know we have to be perfect or that we have to have perfect obedience and keep the commandments just that we have to be willing to take upon the name of the son in and be willing to always remember him and be willing to keep his commandments. But I think that's more of a, a more recent focus on that passage because it always seemed to me that you actually had to be like really keeping the, the major commandments and you can, you can fail in a few of the quote unquote minor, you know, commandments. You can say a bad word, you know, maybe, but, but if you're breaking the word of wisdom, if you're breaking any of the baptismal questions, then you're not worthy of the sacrament. So it seems to me that, it, that it's not just being willing to take upon us these things. It, I, it, to me, at least in my experience, it seems like that willingness is only in the first part where it says we're willing to take upon us the name of, our, of the son. And then the rest is what we're actually doing, that we're remembering him and keeping his commandments. So I wanted I wanted to bring that up and see if that's how you felt it or did you feel as Latter-day Saint that it meant that all of those things following were whether we were willing or not or or whether we also had to perform them. So what what did you guys think of that? Yeah, so so I um I felt just like you did, Matthew. Um I didn't think that just being willing was good enough. And I think maybe Latter-day Saints nowadays are are kind of going that route that route because they're they're more aware that they can't be perfect. You know, I thought that I could be perfect if I just tried hard enough. And now I see how fruitless that is. But I think what I would have a problem with, uh, you know, just being willing, you know, oh, well, I'm willing to be to keep the commandments, but I'm not doing it. I think that breaks down at some point, because if you really truly were 100 percent willing, you would be keeping the commandments. But the fact is that we are also willing not to keep the commandments. And so I, I do think it breaks down. Hmm. How about you, that's, Paul? That, yeah, that, that's interesting. Cause I, I always kind of noted the the difference in length between the bread and the, and the water. And always thought that, that that was kind of like an act of, um, of mercy on the 16 and 17 year old priests. Because if you were the one who was doing the water prayer, you had to sit through, you know, the, the sacrament hymn and then the, the other priests doing their bread recitation and then you had to do your recitation and by that point your palms were sweating and all of the moisture out of your throat was gone and you were choking on the own on your own you know back of your throat to try to get the words out so i always i always viewed that kind of as an act of mercy that it was shorter hmm. and, and so i mean i'm assuming that's partly is like half serious half 
joking or are you all serious there? It's all joking. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was thinking, okay, he's making a joke, but then he's not laughing. <laughs> so I was waiting maybe, for you all to laugh. <laughs> maybe he's serious. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's oh shoot. I almost said it. I almost said it. Uh so but did you see in terms of the length being a difference in requirements or you know how I kind of said that it seemed yeah. weird. I like I kind of clung to the mercy and the water prayer versus the stringent requirements in the bread prayer. You know, I was like, maybe I don't fit the bread, but at least I can cling on to the water. You know, at least I remember Jesus. Yeah, it is kind of weird though that they kind of make it or imply here that you know the flesh of Christ grants us more mercy than the blood of Christ. So I never noticed that before. So thanks for bringing that up. Isn't Matthew saying the opposite? Well, the, the bread one is the one that says that we're willing to keep his commandments. And the the water one says that we always remember him and his spirit will be with us. So it seems like the water is actually, and I know I'm, I'm switching between water and wine. Um, mm-hmm. For anyone who's curious about that, that's just because, yes, the Doctrine and Covenants says wine, but the actual prayers say water. When they say them, uh, they don't use wine in their sacraments. Um but yet, it does seem like the the water has less requirements than the bread does. Okay, because it sounded like you said the opposite earlier. Because I was confused, like Paul was. I I did. I said the opposite. Yeah, that's my bad. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. So, so Matthew, if I'm understanding you correctly, you, you where it says that that they're willing to take upon them the name of the name of thy son, um, you kind of clung to that, right? As um, like I'm willing. I'm not perfect, but I'm willing. To, right. take a, to take Christ's name upon me on, on that part. And, and, but, but also more so on the water prayer where it says that they do always remember him. So like maybe I'll sin or maybe I'll screw up during the week, but I'll, it, there's never a point where I'm just like completely forget about Jesus, you know? So I'm like, well, at least as, as long as I at least remember Jesus, even though I screw up, you know, maybe I have some hope of having the spirit. But what was your experience of like, how, how did how did that play out practically? Right. So if, if, were you, were, was it like I'm unconscious of, of messing up, um, but I remember Jesus or was it I, I'm, I'm facing this temptation and I mess up while I'm remembering Jesus almost, almost, you know what I mean? That's almost like contrary to what Paul says we should be doing. Yeah. It almost sounds like a license to sin. Yeah. I was kind of more like, I, I don't know. It, it was more like I, I was holding, I was trying to think of something to, to have hope in, you know, because when I read, oh man, I don't keep the commandments all the time. So I fail that requirement. Um, so I was like, well, with the bread, I'm shot on that part. But at least if I were try, you know, at least if I'm willing, if I have the desire and at least if I remember Jesus, maybe there's some hope that I can still have the spirit with me all the time. And, you know, it's kind of like, even if you sin, it's not, it's not like I'm using, I was trying to use it as a license to sin. It was more like, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll have temptation and you'll, you'll, you're still weak and you'll still give into it. You know, even like if you're praying for strength to overcome it or something like that. So it sounds so, like you, it sounds like you hungered for a deeper level of mercy than, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than sometimes LDS teachings allow for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking too, because even though the, the sacrament prayers make it seem like just remembering Christ will keep, the spirit with you or just being willing, you know, it was definitely taught in, in Sunday school that if we sinned, it would offend the spirit and he would leave. You know, I, I think that was taught to me quite a bit. I mean, is that what you guys experienced as well? Yeah, I think, I think it depends on the severity of the sin and it also depends on, 
kind of your intent, I guess, you know, not, not just in the objective, the objectivity of the sin itself, but also the intent behind the sin. And, you know, if it was a minor sin, you could, you know, pray and ask for forgiveness and invite the spirit back. If it was something serious, you had to talk to the bishop or the stake president or whatever and continue to pray and ask God for the spirit back. But yeah, I felt like if this, if the sin was severe enough, then yeah, the spirit would leave and you'd have to invite him back through repentance. Yeah, that was, that was my experience as well. And my understanding as well, uh, Michael, that, you know, the, the, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy ghost, um, you know, the, the admonition in that, in that rote, uh, blessing or prayer, right. Is receive the Holy ghost, right. It's, it's almost like, um, it's not like the Holy ghost falling upon you. It's, it's almost like it's your responsibility to allow the Holy ghost in, right. And, yep. and allow him to remain with you. Um, so that it, that was definitely my experience. And, and, you know, they, they used, um, the Bible passage that says, you know, my spirit will not always strive with man to, to kind of say like, you, you know, you, you have this right to have the spirit with you because you've had hands laid on you, but, it's just a right. It's not a guarantee um, because, you know, because of this passage that they're pulling out of context to, to refer to the whole, you know, the Holy spirit as, as, as in the new Testament and saying, you know, my spirit will not always strive with man. So therefore, you know, the, the, the implication was, yeah, that, that if you sin, the, the spirit will, will recede from you. And, and there's even, I mean, there's even passages, uh, you know, we could look them up, um, you know, in the Doctrine and Covenants about people being given over to the buffetings of Satan, and that was also used, you know, to give that impression that that if you sinned, you 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 did not have that promise of the Holy Spirit within you. So in regards to when we talked about how it being renewing the baptismal covenant, something I've always thought about is that was that was what was we were always taught that if you wanted to receive a remission of sins week by week by week, you had to continue to have the sacrament. But do you, do either of you know of a passage that explicitly says that? in any of the LDS standard works where it says something along the lines of, you know, that the, you know, that the sacrament is a renewal of your baptismal covenant, because nothing comes to my mind. That always just seemed like an additional teaching of the LDS church and their leaders. That's kind of been repeated over and over again. Yeah. I feel like that's just a traditional teaching, something that came from the canon of, you know, some prophet back in the day, but not from the actual standard works. Yeah, that's kind of what I've thought. Have, are you aware of any passage that talks about that, Paul? I'm not. I was just trying to search to see if I could find anything I couldn't, but you know, I I don't know. I I don't. I can't think of any passage that that uh, was used to specifically give that that impression. I think it probably is cultural. It's interesting because because I think the first time I I talked about in my story that I've kind of gone through in and out of activity, and so I think the first time I really remember learning about that doctrine or that, that teaching in, in, in the LDS church was when there was this kind of documentary sort of video that they made around the year 2000 with all the, the prophets and apostles of the LDS church at the time. I can't remember what it was called. It was something like, it had something to do with their being apostles and each one of them stood in front of the camera and gave a different teaching. Do, do either of you remember that? Um, Wait, was that a temple video? Uh, not a temple video. It was oh, a video okay. that they gave to members. It was, it was oh, man. Um, but yeah, it was around the year 2000. It was kind of like, it was, you know, it was supposed to to show, you know, where there's apostles in Jesus's time and we're the modern day apostles 2000 years later. I think that's kind of what they were going for. Yeah, I feel like I do kind of vaguely remember watching that. 
and and one so one of them it might have been oaks but i can't remember but one of them talked about that they talked about how each week when we partake of the bread and water in the sacrament then you know that's renewing our baptismal covenant and we receive a remission of sins and i remember learning that and like oh wow i never knew that you know uh, that was kind of early early on coming back to the church and really studying lds doctrine and so that's where i remember it it's gonna drive me nuts though um special witnesses or something like that yeah special witnesses of christ i think probably yeah i mean that does sound really familiar i feel like were they at least some of them like i think i remember oh goodness what is his name like faust was in it yeah yeah faust was in it. and he said i wonder how many drops of blood were shed for me yes yes, yes. special witnesses of christ i just googled it and that's what it is yeah mm-hmm. i really like that one and um who's the really who's the really awesome dude in there he was one of my favorite Richard G. Oh. Scott. Oh, yeah. I liked Richard G. Scott a lot back in the day. He seemed like, you know, a grandpa figure, like just a really chill guy. Like, he didn't, I didn't get the judgmental feelings from him that I got from, like, uh, uh, who, was, who was the dude that was, like, in the 12 Apostles? Packer. I always felt like Packer was secretly judging me. Like, he didn't know who I was, but I knew he was judging me. Well, he always gave the fire and brimstone talks in the uh, priesthood sessions of, <laughs> of conference. So, it's like right. we just got the most punishment from him. All right, guys, I'm going to step in here. 2CV. 2CV? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? I don't even know what that means. All right. Sorry about that diversion. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's where I remember learning about it first. That's why I brought that up. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about that? I, I thought that that would be good to discuss that prayer because that's so, like, the sacrament is so pivotal in LDS theology. Last thought. I think it's interesting, though, that, you know, the sacrament prayers do say that you know, just remembering Christ and being willing to keep his commandments will keep the Holy Ghost with us. And yet it is taught, you know, in other LDS teachings that sin does drive the Holy Ghost away. And so that that does seem like a pretty big contradiction at that point, because it, it kind of negates the ability of the sacrament to really do anything. Right. And so now we would see, we would see the Holy Spirit not being go- coming and going constantly based on sin, but at conversion... Uh, when we're justified and adopted as sons of God and we, you know, and we receive regeneration, of the Holy spirit, the spirit comes and he indwells a believer and he stays with the believer and he doesn't come and go. So when we take the Lord's supper, it's not so that we can renew our baptismal covenant per se. It's primarily, as you said before, to remember Christ and to, and I, and I, as a reform, you know, as a reformed Baptist, I do believe that in the sacrament, you do have communion, not only with Christ, but with, with the body, but also with Christ spiritually you are communing with his person so he's there's spiritual presence in the water or in the wine and the bread and in that spiritual communion since since you can't separate the spirit from the body of christ in the person of christ due to the hypostatic union maybe i'm going way too over the heads of our audience but basically in christ he's he has the god nature the man nature in the man nature is his physical body so when we're partaking of the supper his spirit and his divinity is everywhere it's omnipresent it's it's everywhere so in the spirit in the supper when we're partaking of it we're sacramentally united to christ and because of that we're united to the person of christ including his body and blood but we don't believe that his body and blood are locally um that they're locally present in the sacrament so it's in in the, the lord's supper so we're not physically eating christ we're eating it in remembrance of him and there's a spiritual sacramental union and because of that we're united to christ's spirit and his body in heaven so i just wanted to point that out because i didn't i don't think i really elucidated that earlier yeah Um, that's that's consistent with my view as well um curious though in 
in either of the churches that you both attend, are there are there rote prayers related to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as there are in the LDS church? Not in mine. I don't really think so. I think they do quote one of the gospels when he institutes the the bread and wine. They, they, they'll usually give a short little sermon saying who's eligible to, to take of it. And then he says, and then he'll quote part of the gospel, but it's, I don't think it's set, you know, in stone every single time. Mm-hmm. So what about you, yeah. Paul? No, no, no real prayers uh, in the church I attend. Um, uh, sometimes there, sometimes the worship leader will, will pray uh, before communion. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes an elder will, will come up and give a communion message from, from scripture. Uh, sometimes it will just be a reading from scripture, um, prior to, you know, communion being passed, but no, no rope prayers. And I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that because maybe in the more high church environments like Anglicans or Lutherans, they might have a specific set of prayers. I don't know exactly. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, it's just not how we do it. Uh, when instituting the sacrament or ordinance of the Lord's Supper at the Passover table, the night of his betrayal, the Lord said the following in the gospel according to Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, quote, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. End quote. So what is Christ saying here when he says, This is my body, and this is the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood? Paul, do you want to go first? So I'm having a really tough time with this question. I'm just going to be honest, because I feel like we've kind of covered this a lot. I don't really have any. That's true. Yeah, I think I, think I struggle with this one because... Um... The so the conversation around it from a from a historical standpoint really kind of stems from the Reformation and a reaction to the doctrine of transubstantiation within the Roman Catholic Church, which postdates the Bible and you know doesn't have any support from the Bible um, ex- except perhaps this passage right which which some reformers then took and had to react to because of, because of the Roman Catholic view of, of transubstantiation. But I don't think that, um, I don't know. I I don't think that that was a controversy in the early church. Um, It was a critique that was made of the early church, right? By those who would, would throw the charge of, of cannibalism upon Christians because, because they, you know, we're taking the sacrament of the Lord's supper, but I don't know that whether or not this passage actually means that the, the bread is, is Christ's body. Um, and the, and the cup is Christ's blood. I, I don't know that that was a controversy that really raged prior to the reformation. So for, for me, someone, someone who goes kind of directly to the Bible, um, all of that post uh, apostolic era stuff, especially when you get down to the Reformation, it, it's not really interesting to me because I, I don't see that in this passage. That's just my take on it. I think a lot of times we, and, and the reformers, when they were looking through scripture and they were trying to go back to understand scripture from the source and they had scriptures their highest authority, they still tried to consult earlier church fathers because 
they were they didn't want to go the route of coming up with something totally crazy off the wall that no one had ever thought of before because they thought that would be a bad idea because they they still had a high view of the church in terms of God guiding the church you know uh, throughout the ages and so if they came up with something that was totally never taught before that's probably not a good thing so um, there are there are several quotes from early church fathers though that still that that seem to indicate that not everybody there was this teaching of real presence but it's not the same as transubstantiation in the roman catholic church Mm -hmm. um and so there are a lot of quotes from early church fathers that do seem to indicate that it's more symbolic and less literal transformation of the the essence of the bread and wine to body and blood of jesus so maybe i'll just quote a couple here um uh clement of alexandria he said uh so this is from his the instructor uh, I don't, uh, I'm guessing this is book one, page six or chapter six. Uh, so if he says here, quote, elsewhere, the Lord in the gospel, according to John brought this out by symbols when he said, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood, describing distinctly by metaphor, the drinkable properties of faith and the promise by means of which the church, like a human being consisting of many members is refreshed and grows is welded together and compacted of both of faith, which is the body, and of hope, which is the soul, as also the Lord of flesh and blood. For in reality, the blood of faith is hope, in which faith is held as by a vital principle. Close quote. Augustine, he is a really popular theologian, so I'll just quote one from him also. So this is from Augustine on Christian doctrine. So quote, if the sentence is one of command, either forbidding a crime or vice, or enjoining an act of prudence or benevolence, it is not figurative. If, however, it seems to enjoin a crime or vice, or to forbid an act of prudence or benevolence, it is figurative. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, says Christ, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And so this is, this is quoting scripture. This seems to enjoin a crime or a vice. It is therefore a figure enjoining that we should have a share in the sufferings of our Lord and that we should retain a sweet and profitable memory of the fact that his flesh was wounded and crucified for us. Close quote. So it, it seems to indicate that there are some passages where they focus a lot on the symbology. However, you could also take other quotes that say that they really focus on the fact that, that, you know, that we are communing. They'll say such thing as we eat Christ's body and we drink his blood. But we tend to think back on those phrases as literal, you know, that, oh, well, they must have thought it literally. But I think, like you said, Paul, in the early, in the early church, I think they clearly understood they were, they were not literally eating Jesus' body and blood, but that they were figurative of Jesus' body and blood. And it's kind of become, it was over time where it was more enforced, this idea of transubstantiation. And it was definitely after the first millennium that it that it really started to come into play, especially with Aquinas. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the early church definitely reacted to the to the criticism of cannibalism and, and defended themselves against that so it mm-hmm. uh, that that to me makes it for me hard to believe that they that they held a view anything like transubstantiation um and i you know i, I know there's the whole argument between swingley and luther on this right mm-hmm. uh and the pounding of the fist and this is my body and i know there's that that whole argument in church history but but again just going back to the to the biblical texts that that you quoted here i don't think that's there and and I wish I had got this up specifically, the quote, but there's someone from Ligonier who's talking about this. And if you remember, the Lord's Supper is in the context of the Passover. They're having the Passover supper together. And a lot of times they would, they would have different parts of the supper and they would represent certain things. Um, like I think, don't, don't they have a lamb and then they eat the lamb and that represents kind of like uh, 
man, I wish I'd looked this up, but basically, basically there are different elements of the Lord's supper that are symbolic and they say, this represents this, this represents that, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think the lamb actually represents the blood that was on the doors that, that protected them from, from God's judgment. And uh, so, so each, so they would point to it and say, this is this, but of course it's symbolic. So then in that same kind of context, um, pointing to the bread and saying, this is my body and pointing to the wine saying, this is my blood they would have understood that he's making a connection there, that he's not saying this is literally transformed into my body and blood. Just as when you're re- eating the, the unleavened bread and you're eating the, um, the meat, you know, they understood that these were symbols pointing to what had happened at the, pa- the original Passover. So I, yeah, like you said, I think, I think we just read it in the wrong context in our modern way of Western kind of way of thinking and, excluded from the context of the early of the early church and of the apostles that that we get into this controversy of whether jesus is literally there in the bread and wine or whether he's not literally there so sorry i think i keep going around and around in circles around the same thing but we keep saying it over and over again but yeah i figured this was was important to tackle because you know latter-day saints are very much symbolic you know he's not there at all but i think he's there in, in spirit there's a spirit you know there's a spiritual presence and a spiritual communion with christ not a physical one and that's yeah. the way that, that calvin felt he 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 was kind of trying to unite zwingli the zwingli inside and the lutheran side trying to say hey you know there is a union here there is a communion here but it's not local physical presence it's a spiritual presence right yeah and i agree with that um uh, yeah. So yeah, and, and I don't mean I don't mean to sound dismissive of the, of the this is my body argument. It just um it, it just doesn't land with me, and I I know I know it's a really super important to some people, but it it just has never landed with me. But I don't go all the way to anymore to it's you know it's nothing. There's there's no communion but a symbol. It's it's not just a remembrance. There there is there is um there is a real communion with the Lord in in the supper. And I, and I brought this up too, because I have friends that, you know, that I've talked to that, you know, I'm able to joke with and be friends with on Facebook, but they've flat out said that because I don't have either a Lutheran, Anglican, Catholic, or Orthodox view of the Lord's Supper, that my sacraments are not valid. So I don't know if that means they think that I'm not saved, probably not, you know, but they, but they would say that my view of the, the sacraments means that they're invalid. So that it is that important to some people that you have a local physical presence in the supper that if you don't believe that, then it's invalid. Do you know what I mean? So to some traditions, it is very, very important. Now I wouldn't say all Lutherans or Anglicans, et cetera, would say that, but these, you know, some of my friends have said that. Wow. That's interesting. So, okay. Just to make sure I got this straight. Cause I was going to ask you this earlier, Matthew, but the difference between Lutheranism and, and reformed theology on this point is that, it sounds like Lutherans would say that there's a localized real presence of the savior, but reformed theology just says that it's, it's a spiritual presence. Is that what it is? Right. Yeah. So Lutherans actually do believe that there is a, a physical local lo- locality of Christ's physical body and blood in the supper. Oh, okay. but it's different because they don't believe like Catholics do. So Catholics believe in trans trans meaning changing or, or evolving or whatever substantiation being substance, like what it's made of. So they believe that the body, so the bread, actually the entire substance or essence of the bread is removed and replaced with Christ's body and the wine, the substance is completely removed and replaced with, with his blood. And so why does it still taste like, like bread and wine is because they make the distinction between substance and accidents. 
accidents being the outward appearance, the taste, the smell. So the accidents stay there. So it still smells and tastes and looks like bread and wine, but the substance of it is completely removed and, and replaced with Christ's body and blood. That's the Roman Catholic view. And the Lutherans, they do not believe that. They, so they don't believe in transubstantiation, but they do believe that Christ's physical body and blood are added to in around and through the elements of the, the bread and wine. So they, they won't really go much further than that. They'll say it's more of a mysterious uh, sacramental kind of union of, of Christ's body and blood in the sac- in the Lord's supper. They don't really know how it works, but, and you know, it's not like you can pick out, you know, molecules of Christ's body and blood. It's, it's in and through the wine and the bread, but they do believe that they are literally taking Christ's body and blood. So one of the one one further point on the Roman Catholic view is that the the actual transubstantiation, unless I'm wrong, takes place at the blessing of the elements by by the priest, right? Correct. So prior to that point, um, they're they're just bread and and wine, um, and then there's this transformation that is said to take place once the priest blesses the elements. And so with, with the with the Roman Catholic view, you're back to a similar thing like we were talking about with baptism, but only with regard to the world's with the Lord, regard to the Lord's Supper, right? Where um suddenly you're back to that, that there's only this special authority that can make this real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Is does does Lutheran I don't think Lutheranism has the same view with regards to the authority though right of the minister in terms of changing the elements i think they do actually because really? okay. they do they i think they do still participate in um the the holy orders they might not call it that but uh let me google that real quick we need to uh, we need to find a, a fourth person an, an ex-mormon lutheran to uh that yeah. knows all this stuff well i know i know that lutherans are very heavily they heavily believe in apostolic succession um uh let's see so okay this is just from the wikipedia page so who knows how authoritative it is but great uh, although the lutheran confessions do not deny that holy orders may be considered sacramental uh okay no it's so they don't believe it to be a sacrament the same way that roman catholics do but they do believe in the bishop priest deacon distinction so i i do think they they do believe in kind of a passing on of authority in the church because you know the, the lutheran church the Lutherans and the Anglicans, especially, they do believe that they still have apostolic succession, even though they broke off from the church. You know what I mean? Because they they saw themselves as truly reforming the church and not uh, restoring or breaking off or forming a new church. They felt that they were continuing on from what came before. So maybe I'm wrong about the Lutherans. I'm pretty sure about the Anglicans that they really believe in this succession of authority uh, in their church. Yeah, I could, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look into it. I guess my question was more specifically about, like, do they have the same view as as Roman Catholics with regard to when when there's a change to the elements and that it that it's tied to the authority of the the minister, mm. or if it's or if it's like you were saying, it's more of a mysterious thing that takes place regardless of the minister. Yeah, that's not, I'm not quite sure about that. I've started to kind of dive into Lutheran theology, but there's a lot there that I'm trying to wade through, so I don't know about that. I have to look that up. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about this question or um, move on? I mean, you could talk all day about, you know, this controversy of local physical presence or, but I did want to also mention too, this just came to mind. So they, so I don't think that Lutherans believe, well, I'm not, I'm not actually certain. I don't think that they believe like Catholics do that you're, 
that you're actually digesting or chewing on Christ. You know, I think it's more, I still think it's somewhat sacramental in its nature. Do you know what I mean? To, to, to kind of avoid that, the accusations of cannibalism or eating literal flesh. So I think Lutherans do believe it's still sort of a mystical sacramental union, even though they do believe that the, the physical body and blood of Jesus is actually in the supper. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a little bit complicated. And a lot of times Lutherans will just kind of tell you that it's a mystery and, and they just believe the scriptures and they don't really go further than that. Maybe just a, sorry, it's it's a little Uh bit of a tangent, but I think it's interesting to talk about. So when, when we were LDS, right, the, I don't know if you ever had the experience as a a LDS missionary in having to talk about, uh, talk to an investigator who was coming to church about, hey, only baptized members take the sacrament. Did you ever have that that conversation? Yeah, I definitely had that conversation, which was awkward because if they looked around they would have seen you know parents letting their little kids take the sacrament all the time who weren't baptized right right and so the the idea behind that right was like if if you're not baptized and renewing your baptismal covenant then you're you're partaking unworthily was that your understanding as well Uh, i didn't think it was taking unworthily i just thought it didn't do anything so there was no point in taking the sacrament if you hadn't been baptized okay I was just going to quickly say our, our mission president, we were, we asked him that question specifically. And he said, you know, um, don't actively discourage them from taking the sacrament because yeah, it was basically the same thing that, that Michael just said, it's not going to really do anything for them in terms of, you know, they haven't made the baptismal covenant, so they can't renew it. But he felt it was kind of more of like a, it makes them feel part of the congregation kind of a thing. So it wasn't against, there was nothing wrong with them taking it especially if they don't really understand what's going on. You know, it's more of just like a communing with the, the fellowship of, you know, the fellow saints, I guess. So, yeah, we were told not to actually discourage them from doing it. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm curious then, like, about the churches that you attend, is there any kind of similar approach to people who aren't uh, baptized members of the congregation or, uh, or members of the congregation uh, on record? No, I don't, I haven't seen anything like that. Just, you know, the only thing I've heard him say is that you need to have accepted Christ. Um, I haven't seen anything so specific as what you're talking about. What about you, Matthew? For us, our elders ask that everyone examine themselves, that they find themselves to be a true believer in Christ, you know, that they place their trust in Christ and repented, uh, but that they also be a member of a church in good standing. So they don't really make strict requirements in terms of what kind of church. They just say a, a faithful Bible preaching church, and you should be a member of that church in good standing. Mm-hmm. And so by that requirement, um, even though we disagree with our Presbyterian brothers or other Pedobaptist brothers on terms of baptism, um, and if they were to become a member of our church, they would have to be baptized you know, following a profession of faith. So like their infant baptism wouldn't count. You know, it wouldn't count in the sense of becoming a member. Do you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. be- because they're a member of a Christian church in good standing, they can still commune with us at the Lord's table if they visit or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think our, that, can, that kind of our, solves that issue of whether they can. Yeah. Yeah. Our it. church is similar. Um, and and it, it, what, that was one of the things that was interesting to me to kind of study through as I, as I came out of the, the LDS church and, and kind of started attending a, a church that was that's part of the American restoration movement, because that whole question of open or closed communion was, was a big, one of the big reasons why um, Alexander Campbell and his father uh, kind of moved away from Presbyterianism. And then later, even here in America uh, away from the, from one of the Baptist associations 
um, because it was, you know, they were in, in, in Scotland, it was, it was over close communion um, and people being refused for communion who they knew uh, personally to be committed believers uh, because they didn't hold to certain doctrines. And then, um, you know, I, here in America, it was, it was over uh, disagreements over, over doctrines as well, where they broke with the, with the um, Reading Baptist Association. So it's, it's just interesting that that whole conversation to me about, you know, open or close communion. Um, but yeah, like, like our church, um, there, there's something, you know, similar, you know, someone, someone may, an elder may stand up. It doesn't happen every week, but another may stand up and, and make a statement, you know, or it may be up on the, up on the screens that, you know, communion is, is for committed believers in Christ and, um, you know, similar admonitions to examine yourself and that kind of thing. So interesting. And I, and I think that's probably the best way to do it. I know, I know I understand why close communion exists and, I think it's not only to protect the sanctity of what's going on at the Lord's table, because it is, it is an important thing that's happening, but it's also to protect the person. So I can understand why there are other churches that have close communion, but I think it's best to just explain, you know, you, you know, that you should examine yourself and let the people be held responsible for their own actions. If they shouldn't be taking it and they do, that's on them, you know, rather than trying to keep it closed and make sure you know, you, because there are a lot of churches that do have close communion, maybe not so much anymore, but I know historically there were a lot of them. Yeah. And I, I know I've read about like in church history and I don't, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, um, you know, how, how close it goes back to the apostolic era. But I, you know, I know in the early, in the early church, there was, you know, when, when they would reach the point in the service where they would um, be ready to take the, the Lord's supper, then there was a call for, quote unquote, the doors and, and people who were, who were not baptized people who were, uh, what, what, what do they call them? Um, the proselytes. I'm oh, sorry. Proselytes. Yeah. Proselytes. It is one word. Cate- for, catechumens. 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 Yeah. People who were catechumens, investigators, quote unquote, would, would be asked to, to leave prior to the, the Lord's supper and the door, then the doors would be closed. Um, and I've always, you know, I, I always wonder what that was about, you know, was it um, was it because they they wouldn't be worthy, or was it because um, you know p- people who were in that process of not not yet having uh, committed themselves to uh, being a believer of, in Christ were, were they you know were they trying to avoid people misunderstanding what they were doing? Uh, I, just, I just always wonder what the what the motivation was behind that. So because it it's one of those things that I think plays into the whole, you know, later discussions of open or close communion. And, and then people get into trying to justify close communion from, from like the, the apostles in the upper room. So it's, it's just an interesting, interesting uh, rabbit hole of church history. You can kind of go down. Yeah. That's something, that's something that's really fast, fascinating that I want to see. I found a synonym fascinating that uh, I really want to get into the, the church history of all, you know, the development over time, his, the, the historical theology and the, the development of the sacraments. Yeah, I think that would be enthralling as well. <laughs> That's a good one too. Um, and yeah, so a lot of those points I think I was hoping to get into when we got into 1 Corinthians 11. So yeah, we might we might not have to talk as much when we get to that point. Um, yeah, just a, just a quick recommend book recommendation uh, based on what you both just expressed interest in assuming that you weren't joking. Um, but there's a, a scholar uh, named Yaroslav Pelikan. I think he's passed now, but 
Um, he was, I believe he was Lutheran and converted to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy throughout his, his scholarly career. But um, he, he wrote a series of books on the development of Christian doctrine. I think there's five books. I've got them on my shelf. Um, yeah, there's five. And uh, they're, they're really fascinating. He covers um, like the early church and then he covers like the, the things that led up to the split between East and West. And then there's, um, yeah, that goes into the Reformation in one of them. It's, it's just a fascinating series of books. They're very, very dense and very, very well documented um, in terms of what he presents. Um, so it's really interesting. And he, does, he has an interesting uh, way of footnoting them that's different than anything else I've ever, ever seen where he does it in the side margins um, aligned with where he's quoting something or alluding to something. And so you don't have to flip back and forth to find end notes to see what he's talking about. It's just right there. You can see, Oh, here he's quoting from Justin Martyr or here he's quoting from Tertullian or here he's quoting from, you know, a new Testament passage. So it's, it's really well organized, but um it's called The Christian Tra- Tradition, A History of the Development of Doctrine by mm-hmm. Yaroslav Pelikan. And there's five volumes. So um, it's one of the things that I, I studied through pretty early on after my transition out. And I, I found it really fa- uh, fascinating. Fascinating is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I have, I have the, I think, the first three. So the first one is early church. Second one is, I think it's Eastern church. And then the third one is medieval doctrine or something like that. Yep. Yeah. I think I have those three. I, I want to get the one leading up to the reformation. Yeah. yeah. Fourth, fourth is the one leading up to the reformation. And the fifth is, is more modern like mm-hmm. reformation until now. Well, until at least he finished writing those really good set of books uh, for understanding the development of doctrine throughout history. I've, I've referenced a little bit about the sacraments there and also about the development of uh, devotion to Mary. He talks a little bit about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I like, I really like the way he formats it and references everything in the in the side margin. Um, another another one I would also recommend is uh, the book that I that I thought was the name of his book, but it's actually a different book. It's called Early Christian Doctrine, I believe, by J. N. D. Kelly, and that's a that's kind of a standard text too. That's really recommended amongst historians. I don't I don't remember where where he comes from. I think he was something like Lutheran or Anglican, but I, he does a really good good job of documenting um, the different doctrines of the early, early church. And of course, if you want to get like really in depth in ch- church history, uh, Schaefer is a really solid, solid uh, resource. Yeah. And for our listeners who uh, don't want to dive into like five volumes of, of scholarly tomes, um, another resource that I used a lot when I was first coming out of the LDS church to understand these things was a, um, a series of lectures that were given by a guy named Maxie Birch. Um, I'd have to look up what exactly what his credentials are. He was, he was a, a, a professor at a, at a Christian college, um, but he did a whole series of, of lectures on, on church history from uh, the early church era all the way up through the Reformation and Radical Reformation. And, and um, that whole series of, of lectures, I, would, I just devoured them listening to them while I would be, be mowing lawn. Um, and I know they're still available out there um, I don't know if they're still available on iTunes U, uh, if that even exists anymore. That's where I listened to them, but I know you can find them on his website. Uh, I think, I think it's maxibirch.net. Um, but he does a really great series of, of really engaging lectures on church history. So if you, if you'd rather listen to something, that's where, that's one place to go. 
Yeah, if we're going to keep plugging historical stuff, I'll just plug two more. Uh, I love Ligonier's series on church history. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he's a really good uh, teacher of just he, – he, it's, it's like, it's like the, a super fast, high-view explanation. Uh, Robert, w. Rodford, Robert Godfrey. He has several sections, too, where he breaks it up by centuries. And it's like, you know, the first one is like, uh, you know, like 10 different uh, sections and he's covering 500 years. <laughs> so he, that's a really high level. You know, he has to skip a lot of stuff, but it's really good to just get a bird's eye view of history. And um, another another resource that's good that I've read a little bit myself, I haven't gone through it in detail, but I've referenced it several times and it's really easy to pick up on, really easy to read. It's Nick Needham's four volume set, 2000 years of Christ's power. And so he kind of divides it by era too. I think the first era is like the first 400 years or 500 years and then leading all the way up to the reformation and the modern church. And so it's, it's very readable, not a lot of really high level words. He just breaks it down for just the layman to understand church history. So I think in terms of if you wanted to read or, or listen, I think that's also an audio tape. You could also listen to that. Um, anyways, yeah, there's lots of great resources for learning church history. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.
for your soul For my yoke is easy and my burden is light I am the way and the truth And if you love me and keep my Make my home in 